Welcome to the In All Things Podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with theologian and author Todd Billings about his new book on dying well, the end of the Christian life. This will be the last episode of this first season of the podcast, but have no fear. We plan to be back in a few months with new content, with more author interviews and other ways to continue important conversations. Thanks so much for your patience and attention as we've learned to work in this new medium. It really has been a pleasure. I hope you also get a chance to go back and listen to the other interviews with Tish Harrison Warren, Makoto Fujimura, AJ Swoboda, James Eglinton, Corey Wilson, and Chandra Crane. And thank you so much for tuning in. There's a haunting verse at the end of First Chronicles. David is praying, anticipating the temple that his son Solomon will build. And he says this, But who am I, and what is my people? For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. We are strangers and sojourners. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and we don't get to stay. Or as James says in the New Testament, our life is like a breath of air on a cold day. Our life is fragile, brief, and one day it will end. How do we live in the face of our death, but with Christian hope? And what is the Christian hope? To help us with this question, our feature conversation is with Dr. Todd Billings. His book, The End of the Christian Life, is written from the place of his own existential encounter with his mortality. Before he turned 40, he was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. His earlier book, Rejoicing and Lament, wrestled with that diagnosis from a place of faith. And now, his new book shows us how embracing our mortality makes a difference, not just for the final weeks of our life, but for the whole of our life. By way of introduction, and to give you a taste of the book, I'd like to read a short passage, a story that he tells. As Claude's pastor, a friend of mine, entered the hospital room The bed was circled not with doctors and nurses, but with family and close friends. Only a ventilator was keeping Claude alive now, given the advanced stage of his degenerative illness. Even with the ventilator, each breath took work. Medically speaking, recovery was not possible. And so his loved ones gathered and formed a circle. And one by one, they told Claude how much they loved him. There were smiles and laughter, as well as tears at this goodbye. After the others had spoken, the room was quiet for a moment, shifting the attention to the pastor. Just as my friend was beginning to speak about the bold Christian trust that we belong to God, ready to commend Claude to the Lord in prayer, Claude reached up and pulled the ventilator off his face. The circle of people gasped, as did Claude, who would not be able to breathe more than a few minutes without the ventilator. But with the ventilator off and his mouth free to speak through labored breaths, His lips delivered words he had learned as a child. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, 
in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The words of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism trailed off as Claude's final breaths quietly punctuated his last earthly moments. My pastor friend was in tears when he told the story, as was I by the time he finished. Many Christians today try to combine the prosperity of status and health with the gospel of Jesus Christ. More than a few cannot imagine a terrible sickness followed by death to be anything other than a defeat. But Claude, in this final scene of his earthly life, gave his family a taste of a different kind of prosperity. In the conversation that follows, I was joined by guest co-host Todd Zydema to ask Dr. Billings about Christian hope, our denial of death, and what practices can help us embrace our mortality freeing us to truly live. I want to welcome two guests to the In All Things podcast. First, my co-host for this episode is Reverend Todd Zydema, the Director of Church Relations here at Dort University. Todd, thanks so much for hosting this episode with me. Thankful to be here. Thanks for asking, and it's a joy to be able to participate today. So Todd Zaidema also wrote the In All Things review of the book that is the subject of this conversation, which was written by our featured guest, also a Todd, Dr. Todd Billings. Dr. Billings is the Gerard Research Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Dr. Billings, thanks so much for joining us. It's an honor to be with you. Dr. Billings, your recent work uh, is situated by your own encounter uh, with your mortality. So I wanted to ask you by way of beginning, uh, what is the relationship of this new book that you've written, The End of the Christian Life, to your other work, and especially the book that I'm interested in you talking about is this book that you wrote on joy and lament, which is called Rejoicing and Lament. How do you see all of that fitting together in your larger body of work? Yeah, it's a good question. In some sense, both Rejoicing and Lament, which came out in 2015, and The End of the Christian Life are books that I never thought I would write. And so uh, that's, I guess, one commonality with them. But particularly, Rejoicing and Lament was written after and in light of my 2012 cancer diagnosis. I was 39, married, kids age one and three, and was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. And within a few weeks, needed to start intensive chemotherapy and um, have a stem cell transplant. And I, I took that time, some of it was hospital time, and then it ended up being during a sabbatical time to kind of rediscover the Psalms and um, dive into how my own cancer story fits into the larger, much more grand story of God's redemptive work in Christ. And so, it really is more of a connection of especially my first year of cancer treatment with this larger theological story and exploration of lament and joy. And so, it kind of follows that chronology. The end of the Christian life, it's not as much of a memoir in terms of some of the features 
as the rejoicing and lament. I mean, rejoicing and lament really is, isn't a memoir in the proper term. Um, it's, it may be too grand. It's, it is too grand of a comparison, but just as Augustine's Confessions was not a memoir, but was seeking to point to the work of God, um, I really tried to use my own cancer story and the enigmas within that to point to the larger story of, of God and Christ and how that can be discovered in new ways. The end of the Christian life emerges from two different sets of experiences that I was trying to process biblically and theologically. One of them is just being a cancer patient and in the cancer community where you get to know a lot of people from young to old, you develop relationships and friendships and mortality and death is very much a part of those relationships. You know, a lot of the people I've gotten to know as cancer patients have died and the reality of dying and death is a very real part of that relationship in a way that at least here in the United States, I've not experienced relationships like that before. And so in some ways it used cultural immersion into the cancer community mm -hmm. as a way to see some new things about the larger story of scripture and how our mortality relates to our discipleship. The other background dynamic is just realizing how much of a challenge this is in churches today, especially in the United States and the UK and Western contexts. And I'm sure that the other Todd could speak to this. Mm. As I asked students who were in pastoral ministry, what was, what's your biggest challenge in ministry? A lot of them said, dealing with death. And I wasn't expecting that, you know, mm. um, especially folks who had come to seminary right after college. Many of them had never been to a funeral before, mm. and they're doing 10 to 12 to 14, presiding 10 to 14 funerals a year. They're getting questions about whether grandpa should stay on life support, all sorts of questions in a world that they, a very medicalized context that they are not sure how to navigate. And so together with some pastors and some theologians, we did a series of colloquies. We, I had a Louisville Institute grant that helped us do this just to explore what are some of the issues going on on a congregational level? Why is this such an issue of challenge? And I learned a lot in that process, learned a lot about how this is affecting the life of everyday Christians. And coming away from that was some of why I wrote the book as I did, which is not just an end-of-life book. It's not mainly about how to think about your life as you enter into hospice. It's about how to live the whole Christian life, whether you are young or old, whether you are you know, a child, a parent, grandparent. How do you approach all of these with an awareness of your mortality and that how an awareness of this mortality can actually be a gift in the process of discipleship. Because we found that so much American Christianity has pushed death and dying to the sidelines. And so just to say, 
when somebody goes into hospice and expects to live six months, hey, there's this whole different story that we haven't been telling you about, about how the Bible relates to death and mortality. That's not a good approach. We were seeing, in fact, all sorts of ways in which our, our discipleship is malformed because it's denying, in a lot of ways, of our mortal limits. And so, those two experiences, the conundrums in them, um, and just returning again and again to, to Scripture, which ended up having such wide and deep responses to this, um, those are at the core of what was behind this project. I think that's, that's really helpful. In my own personal study, thinking about that, that phrase, memento mori, which you brought up, remember that you will die, I think that goes, fits very well with, with, with the next question. You talk about our culture's denial of death and, and yeah, how our culture has, has shifted away from finding, finding identity in community. Um, I appreciated your comment earlier about kind of entering into this cultural immersion of uh, the cancer community and kind of finding relationship that you weren't able to find anyplace else. Reflecting on your book as well as uh, in my own experience as a pastor, I realized that people have had in some ways a malnourished eschatology. And um, and how has this really affected in an individual's ability to, to process their, their own mortality? There's a lot of different factors that come together with this. Some of this relates to the cultural formation that we have had under modern medicine, just even in the last 50 to 60 years. Some of this relates to the eschatology, as you were pointing out, Todd. One thing we found in our colloquies is that um, some of the most influential works for lay people and as well as elders in the church in a lot of contexts in their eschatology are near-death experience stories. Mm. And, you know, those are the best sellers. Those are the ones, the um, heaven is for real and all the different little adaptations. And whatever else one says about those stories, they're certainly individualistic in terms of the visions they give of, of life after death. You know, it's basically sort of family reunion, you and grandpa and maybe Jesus and, you know, things like this, which is a huge contrast to the great cosmic vision of redemption, of Christ returning to set all things right and make all things new and in judgment and in communion. So, I think that it's one of those areas that in terms of our cultural formation, we're kind of like a fish who's in water who doesn't realize how murky our water is because this is just what we have gotten used to. But if you go to other parts of the world, and this is when I first encountered it, and I spent a few years doing mission work in East Africa, and one of the first things I noticed in living there and in immersion was just how important death was to people's identity. Um, you know, how many children you have that are living and who have died, um, memorial services, um, you go to funerals because of a kinship structure. I ended up going to funerals about once a month. I have not gone to funerals once a month here in the United States. It's, it, it shapes you and forms you in a particular way. And even in the United States, and even back to the 1940s, most Americans died in their homes. But 
that has changed dramatically so that the vast, vast majority of Americans um, die in institutions, in hospitals or nursing homes. And so if you think through some of the everyday life transformation that would involve, it is significant just for how your own (laughs) formation takes place. So I live in Michigan right now and live in a house that's from the early 20th century. And some of these houses in Michigan from the early 20th century, late 19th century, they actually have rooms that have a place for a coffin. And the coffin would go in the the living room because that's where you would have people come over to grieve after a death took place. And that's actually where basically there would be what we would call hospice today. It would be the children of the grandparent or of the parent or the brother or sister. It would be a common experience then as a child to care for someone who's dying in your living room. Mm -hmm. Now, that may sound really traumatic and scary to us, but I think some of the reason it sounds traumatic and scary is because we hear about death many times a day, but it's through headlines and it's through different forms of media and movies. And the stories we hear about death make it always sound scandalous, like somebody's going to get sued or there's you know something terrible wrong if there's if death happens here. But you know there, there's still a 100% mortality rate. <laughs> um, we don't realize that when that is our experience of death and when we don't have an everyday experience where we touch someone who is in the process of dying and are present with them, some of what we pick up on is the sense that death is something that happens to other people. It doesn't apply to me. And in addition to this, the way our technology works with cell phones, social media, news sources that are made for me and for my interests, there are so many things in our culture that basically say, I am in charge of my own world. That's something that mortality and death dramatically calls into question. And so it's a very subtle, it's a very subtle thing because a lot of it has to do with even if we know people and have loved ones who have died, are we able to be with them in that process? How connected are our churches and church communities? It used to be someone, anyone in the congregation dies, the whole congregation shows up for the funeral. Well, you know, funeral attendance has been going down and down and down. And so that leaves us to a place where it's about the individual and the individual is sort of taught to think death happens to other people. And I don't have to think about it till I'm 85. And a lot of Christians seem to assume that, you know, if I live a good Christian life, God owes me a a long life till I'm 85, then I can start thinking about death. That is an extraordinarily bizarre, from a biblical standpoint, way to think about our mortal lives, where again and again, the psalmist is talking about how our life is just like a breath. Um, before the everlasting Lord. And the psalmist commend us to to number our days, to dwell upon the shortness of our life, everyone from 
St. Benedict to ask his monks to meditate daily on their death to Jonathan Edwards and many others who would have this daily meditation. But it's become very countercultural um, in our moment. You said, you know, this is not just a book about the end of the Christian life, but it's really about the whole of the Christian life and living the whole of Christian life in light of that end. And I think one of the most important things I took away from your book is this idea, not just of embracing my mortality, but with it, what you call this idea of smallness. In fact, I finished it and I wrote in a journal, you are small, do small things. (laughs) Um, Uh My takeaway, you know, from, from this book. And I wonder if you could tell us more about what you mean by that sense of smallness that accompanies our mortality. And then related to that, how does that shape the way that we think about the call to make culture? At our institution, we consider ourselves sort of transformationalists. You know, we're going to transform culture or go out and you know build God's kingdom. And a lot of times we use these uh, phrases that, I don't know, almost seem grandiose. And so how do we hold that together? really the the grandeur of what God has called us to as image bearers, together with the smallness of what it really means to be human and creatures and mortal? That's a great question. I love both aspects of it there. I think that some of the reason I came to this notion of living small is in contrast to what I describe in the book as a hero culture. And A hero culture is one where we actually deny our mortality by acting as if we can live forever if we join some great cause or give our lives for some great hero who claims to have it all together and to claims to be invincible. And some of where where I developed this from is from Ernst Becker. Um, in his 1973 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. And he develops this as he was um, reflecting on both the rise of Nazism and of Stalinism in the 20th century. Um, He was Jewish and realizing that a huge engine of culture is the denial that we are the small, relatively fragile mortal creatures who have connections to the earth, who defecate and die like other creatures. And that it's some of these ideologies are ways where we are claiming that the rules don't apply to us. Um, It's all about death denial, about denying our um, mortal limits. And so living small isn't just like a checking out (laughs) from that hero culture. It's actually doing something really beautiful instead. Living small is something that involves paying attention to where you're at, (laughs) paying attention to the opportunities that you do have in day-to-day life. Most of us don't have a chance to solve world hunger or even, you know, to make a major difference in a lot of the pressing questions of our day. But we do have neighbors and family members and others who 
we can either see as instruments for our own purposes, or we can love them with delight um, in that moment that we are given. And so one way to get at this would be the contrast that David Brooks gives between resume virtues, which he thinks our culture is very good at helping us um, um, celebrate and eulogy virtues. Um, at a eulogy, no one's talking about, you know, oh, Dr. Billings, you know, his fifth book was just critically reviewed. And, you know, they're, they're talking about, did, did Dr. Billings care about me when I was in his class? How did he respond when I had to miss class because of my grandpa's funeral or when I showed up in a way that I realized was kind of a mess. These things in, involve the, the living small and also just delighting in creation. And that's something my son, Nathaniel, has helped me a lot with where we take a lot of walks together. And often he will notice things that I am just as an adult, just completely oblivious to. So he loves cicada shells. And so he'll search for cicada shells, which are just amazing detail on these cicada shells. Doesn't have an insect in it anymore, but you could see all the different aspects of the insect and the shells that still end up on the tree. And we'll just spend so much time with these cicada shells and learn to evaluate them and compare them. And he was trying to sell them to neighbors. And <laughs> so much delight and joy. And why is it that we miss out on these things as adults? We're, we're, we're trained to not pay attention to the joys of the moment, to the wonder in creation. And we tend to just go to places of anxiety and other places where we want to be in control. And so living small is kind of realizing I'm not the hero. I'm not in control. And I think that's the biggest thing I would want to say on cultural transformation. I mean, I'm, I'm on board with the sense that as Christians, our calling is to all areas of life. It's not just to save souls, but that the God of creation and redemption is interested in the whole world and all aspects of, of life. But I think we have to also guard against any kind of triumphalism. So when we tell people, as I was told, I, I'm not a Dort graduate, I went to Wheaton, but I still remember in Wheaton Chapel being told, you know, your generation is going to go out and transform things and fix all these problems that we've passed on to you. And each generation is, is kind of told that. I feel like it can be a very toxic message, actually. And if you think, uh, you, sometimes it's even framed as, you know, we are training people to go out and change the world and transform the world. As Christians, I think we need to say, full stop, God alone can change the world. And I can participate in that in some very small but meaningful ways. And I think if you look at people who even have had big impacts, they've not 
been people who have tried to be like, did Augustine try to be Augustine? <laughs> like, did Martin Luther King Jr. try to be Martin Luther King Jr.? No, <laughs> they were trying to be faithful in little ways, in small ways. One way to illustrate it is as we pray um, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a petition to some extent. This is a time of laying down our lives before, before God and saying, your will be done. But it's also, to a greater extent than I think we'd like to believe, it's also a lament and, and just a cry out for the future. It's, I really see it as parallel in some ways to come, Lord Jesus. The kingdom is not going to come because of us. We can give little signs and foretastes on our best days through the grace of God alone, but it's not going to come because of us. The resurrection did not come because of the disciples. This is 100% wholly the action of God. And when heaven and earth come together, that is the big day. That's, that's the really big day when Christ comes again to judge, to cleanse, to set things right, and to bring the whole creation into communion with, with the Lord um, once again. One of the things I think that you referenced a little bit, but uh, I think you'd probably be able to share your own experience of, of how um, funerals and uh, this process of remembering has often been moved out of more and more out of the church and into the service of, say, funeral homes and along those lines. And I think our churches have begun to reflect that culture where we, we give that service away to uh, a business that specializes in that. And I think we lose something significant. And I know in my own work as a pastor, having uh, officiated over a, a number of funerals, the education to help people discern the difference between a funeral and a memorial service. Do you have the casket in the front of the church and then go to the gravesite after the service? Or do you gather at the gravesite only as personal family, and then everybody come back to the church and celebrate life. I'd love to hear from you, you know, when we talk about a biblical view of, of death and dying and, and best practices, in your own reflections, what, what would you say in your words does a quote-unquote good funeral look like? That is both an important question and a vexed question in our cultural moment, because it not only brings up the question of funerals, it brings up all sorts of other transitions that have happened. Because what we've had happen is it used to be the pastor by the bedside of the person who is dying. Well, that's been replaced by the doctor or the nurse, the ventilator by the side. It used to be the living room <laughs> where people would come and view with the body and be with the body. And now you call a funeral home as if you have 
as if the body would somehow be toxic to you or something like a dead body is not going to hurt you. But, um, you know, you, you call in the professionals to take it away. And then, um, often the funeral home will do services or memorials and, and so on. So I think there's not just one magic right way to do this, but, at the core of what I would say a good funeral should be like is that the funeral is a time uh, of grieving, of celebrating the hope that we have in Christ, of worship, but really of formation of the body of Christ, of the congregation. And so the central storyline has to be Jesus Christ and that we have no hope for life after death apart from sharing in his resurrection and that the core Christian hope, what I call the Grand Canyon of Christian hope, looks forward to the day, not just of a reunion with grandma Mm -hmm. or something like that, even though I think we're wired to be relational. So, that, that certainly has a lot of power for for people but the center of resurrection hope is big and cosmic it's the final day when all things will be made right where it's not just about continuing on to getting to play golf and hunt deer or whatever i have one friend in michigan who after being a pastor here for 10 years said i never realized there was so much deer hunting in heaven um (laughs) people talk about heaven as if it's a place where you kind of get to continue your favorite hobbies and and so forth heaven is so much greater than that even um because it's the place of fellowship and communion with the god of the universe and not just of the individual, but the whole of creation. And so I know that may sound just totally audacious for a, a funeral, but it, it at least needs to give some, some testimony, some words to the fact that this is our hope. Yes, I think it can be appropriate to say some words for people to say some words about the one who is departed, but if this is going to be a celebration of worship, the central storyline needs to be that we are bringing this person, their life, in their life and their death, and we're saying, this person belongs to Jesus. Jesus, commend, you know, we commend this person to you and um, in, in union with you, that nothing in life or death can separate us mm. from Jesus Christ. This is our hope. And I think that, you know, another trend with this has been having the body present less and less. And I, I, I personally am in favor of, you know, having the body there. It's almost as if like a baptism where the person baptized doesn't show up. I mean, <laughs> let's not reinforce our culture's death denial in church. This, if we are people of hope, we can actually look death in the face and have the courage to do that, saying, yeah, death stings right now, but there will be a day, as the Apostle Paul says, where we will be able to say, where is thy sting? You know, it was, death does not have the final word. And precisely because of that, I think we need to 
be more honest and more in touch with the process of dying and even with the bodies of those who have died. So we've talked about the habits and I appreciate how Justin spoke about that spot about living small and noticing the small things in life. And Dr. Billings, you mentioned the things that your son notices. When we talk about not just remembering a memento mori, remembering that you're going to die, there is also an art of remembering your mortality, ars moriendi. What are the habits and the practices that, that you've learned over your life, maybe particularly related uh, in these past few years as you've been dealing with cancer? But in your reflection as a whole, what are some of the practices that you've developed that have been particularly meaningful? I think it's good to realize that all of us tend to see opportunities to engage with death and dying as threats rather than, I think, the opportunities that they are, because all of us are a bit like addicts who even if we have a really close encounter with death, I have a loved one who has died, we are just addicted to the idea that we ourselves are never going to die and that that's how I should live my day-to-day life. And we have all these cultural forces reinforcing that. And that's true of me as well. So it's not a once and done thing like, oh, I figured out two years ago that I'm mortal Now I can go on and live the rest of my life. It is actually a daily um, reality and um, something that involves daily practice. Um, I think that just a, a a few things that come to mind. I mean, certainly I think there's ways in worship, in congregational worship, that this can be emphasized, particularly in relation to baptism and the Lord's Supper. But just thinking of my own um, daily life, I have daily pain. And I know a lot of people have daily chronic pain. And one of my own challenges has been learning how to relate to that pain differently. And after a while, some of my pain is from my chemotherapy treatment. And so, I mean, I know even the parts of my body that hurt because of the chemotherapy. And so, there's no way to completely disentangle that from pain, incurable cancer, you know, so on. But I've come to see that as a daily gift, as it's not like I'm enjoy the sensations of discomfort, but realizing, hey, I'm an addict to the idea that I should be the hero of the universe. I should be in charge of things. When my pain has to force me to slow down, when it even causes me to stumble sometimes, there's actually a mercy in that. There's a grace in that. And it also just changes even my daily prayers. For example, a prayer, a lot of evening prayers make reference in in traditions that have prayers before you go to bed at night, make reference to death and dying. And that's because there is something about falling to sleep that is a release of control that is kind of like a little death. (laughs) And so, if, if you've ever struggled with insomnia, which I didn't have experience of before cancer treatment, but I have since, the, the, the worst thing you can do 
to try to get to sleep is to try really, really, really hard to get to sleep. Now you've got to, you've got to give up. You've, you've got to just somehow release your grip. And so even when I pray each evening with my kids, I often just use the words from the Heidelberg Catechism, question, answer one, you know, it doesn't need to go into something big and morbid or something, but just, you know, thank you that we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death, that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's enough. <laughs> and I think some of the practices, um, some of the larger practices as well have been connecting with people in our congregation, as well as our neighborhood, who are have serious illness, who are um, sometimes in the process of dying, sometimes just very lonely, and realizing that I need them and my kids need them. For, for me, I had an existential reason. I didn't want my own death to be my kid's first encounter with death. I wanted them to be around people who are actively, who are, who are dying. But you might think that we went and we ministered to these people like we were heroes or something, but they gave so many gifts to us. So seek out people who are hidden, who are slipping away. Just be a companion to them. And um, there's something that we need for our own formation as well as it's such an incredible gift to people as they are dying to have a companion there. And there are so many people who, who, who need that. So those are just a few things that come to mind. I wonder, given the fact that this book did come out during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, is there anything in particular that the way that our country or various people have responded to the pandemic uh, sort of elicited or underlined uh, some of the things that you talk about in your book did it bring it into sharper relief in some ways, uh, some of the conclusions or some of the perspectives that you had on, on death and dying? I sort of, so what can we learn about the way that our culture, both within the church and outside it, approaches mortality if we had this last year as a test case? That's another really good question. And I think that one of the key themes that I ended up both discovering as an aspect of Christian teaching and developing is that it's okay for Christians to have fear of death. The Bible, I don't think, ever teaches that we should have no fear of death. But because of what Christ has done, the book of Hebrews says, we have been freed from slavery to the fear of death. Now, it, during the time of the pandemic, to be honest, I've just been heartbroken to see how in the midst of a context where really everyone's fear has been elevated to some extent, even those even those who, who felt like COVID was a conspiracy or wasn't even real as a disease, their fear was higher. There's no question. I mean, if you think that the, that everybody else is under an illusion, you're scared. And when people are like that, we can easily become slaves to the fear of death, even when we're saying that we're not fearing death. You know, um, I just want to live. I'm not going to live in fear. Well, 
what, what, what's going on here? What's, what's behind this? And some of the material that I discovered in the process of researching is a whole school of social psychology called terror management theory. And one of the things it finds is that if people in our contemporary culture, especially who don't have a lot of firsthand experience of death, if you then have a big encounter with death, people get scared. They do what they call a worldview tightening. And so they become more suspicious of outsiders, more suspicious of those who are not part of their political group, their religious group, their country. And that's in contrast to those who actually have had more kind of everyday experience with death, as well as certain practices even they've found, such as meditative prayer and and so forth, um, where another encounter in death actually opens up compassion. Now, thinking from the outside, you might think, wow, a global pandemic, so many Americans killed, so many killed around the world, so much suffering. This planet Earth must be the most compassionate place, you know, that it's, it's been at for hundreds of years. Well, I, I think it doesn't take a social scientist to tell you it's, uh, our, our Earth is not teeming with compassion right now. And this is something that the gospel can speak into and does speak into, because I think when we have daily reminders and embrace of our mortality. And our goal is not to be fearless, but to live this short mortal life that we have been given in love of God and love of neighbor with awareness of our limits and our needs and the real dangers and, and so forth, then we can be freed to love God and love neighbor, to act with both courage and wisdom, and not just be reacting to each other. And so, a lot of what I've seen in the culture and in so much of the church has just been some people reacting to other people, <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. Whereas this could have been an opportunity to actually get in touch with reality, <laughs> the reality that all of us are dying. And that the illusion is that any of us are masters of, of this. And precisely because Jesus, not only through his cross, has he taken away the final victory from, from death, but he's also, I think the church needs to rediscover the theme in Hebrews that he pioneered the whole process of dying. He's, he's walked this path before. It's okay to be scared of dying, but we don't have to be scared that we're going to be completely alone. Christ has gone before us in this path. And it's in that kind of state where we can be honest about our fear. And I think, I guess the, the people I'm almost most certain are fearful are the ones who says, no, I don't have any fear. No, come on, let's be honest. There is, there is fear and we need to embrace 
that there is fear, but rather than just like having fear being pounding at the door and saying, no, there's no fear here. Fear isn't you know, bothering me at all as it keeps on pounding, yelling at the door. Let it in, let it in. And you'll find that this fear, even the fear of death in the spacious sanctuary where Jesus Christ is Lord, it can be there and it, it won't control things. It doesn't need to control things. It's, it doesn't need to be the loudest voice. Um, it doesn't need to be your Lord. As long as you keep it at the door, it's going to be a lot louder. As long as you're like, no, I'm not fearing, it's going to be a lot louder. But I think we need to have the courage and trust in Christ to say, yeah, I'm, I'm mortal. I'm dying. And I, I fear death. And that Christ can handle that fear of death. We can, we can let it in. There's, there's definitely a lot of implications, I think, regarding the pandemic and um, how we approach our own fear and fear as mortals. Our guest is Dr. Todd Billings, and the book is The End of the Christian Life, which I'll just say personally is one of the best books I've read in the last year. Dr. Billings, you've been so generous with us uh, with your time. So thanks so much for having this conversation with us. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. It's great to be with you. And Todd, thanks so much for co-hosting this episode with me. It was a pleasure. And uh, thank you also, Dr. Billings, for your work. And may the Lord bless you as you continue your walk. And, and thank you for the gift that your book has been uh, to me, but also to the church as well. Well, I hope you were as moved and sobered by that conversation as I was. I can't recommend Dr. Billings' book highly enough, and so I hope you will get it and read it. This is the last episode of Season 1 of the In All Things podcast. We will be back in a few months with more conversations about living creatively in God's created world. If you've been helped by the podcast, please leave us a comment or a rating, and of course, don't forget to share. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.